Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Um, it's happened again, Chanel. No, this... <laughs> Don't know me before. Okay, I've wait. Told you. you texted what? us today. <laughs> Two things happened. One, walking the dog at uh, the local park, and saw this brown furry thing on the ground. And then you texted us, and we said, "Not this again." Well, no, that's later. Okay. There isn't. There isn't almost dead body. Because I have never actually seen one, but I, I think I came close to it. So the first thing, brown furry lump, I'm thinking that doesn't look like a dog. That doesn't look like a fox. What can that be? A possum. No. This is in Bulleen, in oh. suburban Melbourne. Okay. A wombat. Oh. Where do you see a that wombat makes me around really town? sad, though. I know. It made me really sad because there's something about wombats. They're kind of loaf-like and they yeah. look like they could be a dog if they, they weren't like a, a wombat. They a bread. They do, don't they? Yeah. Uh, so that was number one. And so I kept walking um, and that was gross. And I went over close to it and there was like oh. flies and oh. <laughs> went away. Kept walking, uh, come to a little bridge down. So it's by the Yarra River. Yep. Come to a little footbridge. Mm-hmm. And hanging on the footbridge is a gentleman's jacket. Oh, and a pair of shoes. The shoes weren't hanging, obviously. The, uh, the jacket was hanging. Did you hanging. think someone had jumped? I took a photo. There, can you see? Oh, that it? is a actually weird. Is it? There's a exactly. Wait, I want your phone. clothing in the bush. Every time is weird. That's really weird. Hold on, because it's not a jacket; it's a blazer. Yep, it's just like a smart. It's a gasman jacket. You touched it. Hang on. What? So you can't touch it. I'm t- well, that's what I – okay. So I'm standing there looking at it. Two women come along having their morning walk. We're going to put that on our social media. And I said to – and do you know my first reaction when I saw this? I've got to ring Chanel. Oh, no, she'll be working. She'll be in court. I can't ring her. I have to ring her because I don't know what to do. Not do I ring the police? It's not, not an emergency. I'll ring the police. I'll ring Chanel. Well, I thought it's not an emergency. There's no actual body. There's just a jacket and shoes. Is that something you ring police about? So two women came along and I said, excuse me, do you think um, this is a bit unusual? Usual, uh, because you know I'm thinking someone's gone into the river, mm. um, and they said, "Yeah, it is strange." Anyway, one of them, she didn't care, and I said, "Careful, careful, fingerprints." But she's going into all the pockets. Oh, there was a marquee. You're the person card. on the aeroplane that was trying to warn me about the window, and I didn't care. <laughs> she was just picking up the shoes. I'm going, "No, no, no, leave them just in case," and she didn't care. Um, and they said, "Yeah, probably call the police." So I called the Crime Stoppers number, thinking I won't pester the triple zero emergency. Citizen. Yes, hold on, wait. Yeah. Was there anything in the pockets? Yes, there was a my key card and a broken my key card, and then there was just like a bunch of dirt in the other pockets. And the shoes were dirty, like someone so had been like traipsing through. So it's like he's had a fight with mud. his girlfriend. He snapped her my key card, and he's killed her, and yes. then he's put his in his pocket, and then yes. he's left his gasman jacket there. Exactly. Where's he? I don't know where oh. he is. So there's some people fishing on the other side of the river. One of the women yells out, "Oi, you over there? Is this your gear here?" And they all went, "Nah, nah." So. Mystery, and you couldn't cross the river. Like, they couldn't oh. have – yeah. It's too big and wide and deep at that point. Have you figured it out? No? No, but you, you told us in a yes. text message that you'd seen a dead – you could have seen a dead body. Well, where really you just found a jacket. Look, I – You didn't find a dead body. You made it out to us. Like, all right. You can make fun of me, but I called Crime Stoppers and said I need no, to report I, something. No, it's very important that you do that. Excuse me. Uh, but I'm just saying – 
You inflated the story to us and made it sound like you'd found well, a dead body. Crime Stoppers escalated the incident yeah. and put me through to triple zero. Oh, okay. And told me to, to the police I'm not about making it. fun of that. I've said it before on this podcast. It's very important but. that you report even the things that you think are not I a did. big deal. Well, the girl took it very seriously. She took down all the information. She asked me if anything in the pockets and, and she said, do you want to wait with it? Which I kind of did, but I said, no, no, it's all right. Um, and so I left it there and I was on my way. And she said, do you mind if the police call you about it? And I said, no, that will be fine. They, please tell them to call me. <laughs> I got home, phone rings and it's senior constable something or other. And uh, he said, um, he asked, was it me? And could he, could I tell him exactly where it was? And I said, look, I don't think there's any hurry to get to it. And he said, no, look, we've got a couple of other things on the list, which, to be honest, oh. I was a bit offended by thinking. Oh. The jacket and shoe combo was low on the priority list because yeah. it wasn't a body. That's why. And I wanted to say to him, look, we're recording our podcast tonight. <laughs> we're, we're on in a recording session <laughs> in have two hours. Just some sort of a conclusion. If there is a body, uh, just which make I like an not. episode of Law and Order and get this done. <laughs> So I explained to him what I saw and he said, oh, so is it? Is it just stuff there? Is Did it look valuable? And I said, no. He said, look, if it's, they're just going to pick it up and chuck it away. That was oh. basically what he said. And I said, oh, well, I was just concerned. I said, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not wasting your time. I said, I was just concerned that somebody might have gone in the river and may have drowned. That was my thought. And he said to me, oh, you've got a very black mind. Oh. Says the police officer the who's police seen officer a million things. You've been hanging out with me too much, that's why. Uh, well, I wanted to say, well, that Chanel wouldn't say that. She would say, did you go down? I did try and see if there was anyone uh, and there, I saw nothing. Are you so go I don't know tomorrow? the end of the mystery. Yeah, I'm going to go past it tomorrow. Yeah, you see. should. Hmm. I would. I will. I love that your mind immediately panicked because mine would too. <laughs> uh, why did I think to call you before the police? <laughs> I would have been like... Organise a cordon. Don't let anyone go near it. <laughs> Look, to be honest, I reckon it belonged to the guys over the river, the other but side of the river. why would you take your shoes off? To wade across the river? What? I don't know. If you, but if you're wearing a Gazman blazer, why are you wading across the river? What well, happens the other at thing short is, notice that you're wading? It's 30 degrees today. Maybe someone did just go for a dip. Is that a pl- – mm, no one swims in that river. I don't know. Anyway, police can handle it. I've done. I've done my civic duty. It's mm. all I can do. Oops, did I slip? Oh, I'm not going to let do any accents. I'm not. Nope. I can't say why because the person doesn't want me to. But nope. um, here, I hereby pledge that I will not do no. accents when it comes to people's feedback. That yes, well, of anyone living, I will not give yeah. people accents that they don't may not have or yes. ways of talking that they may yes. not have. And the person knows who I'm talking about if they're still with us. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to take it down a notch. Oh, great. <laughs> Which is what we do on this podcast. We don't always pick things up. We just take them right down. Um, I'm going to talk about James Gargasoulis. Oh, Burke Street. Burke Street. So for those – well, I think I feel like everyone knows this story. He was the man who – was on the run for several hours, began doing burnouts in the front of Flinders Street uh, with police following him, turned down Burke Street, killed six people, injured 27 others. Earlier, or kind of the night before, in the early hours of that morning, he'd stabbed his brother. And for those outside of Australia, this happened in, in Melbourne, Australia. Correct, yep. You can Google it. It will definitely come up. Mm. So... Uh, he had, went through two fitness trials, and I'll kind of 
explain this, and I don't mean to say dumb it down, but a lot of people don't understand the court system, no. and that's so fine because unless you've been in it, you don't really have a reason to understand it. Um, so he went through two fitness trials, which were basically to see if he was fit to stand trial because they were worried that he was saying some things about a comet coming to crash into the earth to kill everyone, and that's mm. why he did these things, and talking about himself as the Messiah, blah, 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 blah. First jury on that trial came back, couldn't reach a verdict if he was fit or not. Second jury, they ran it again. Second jury said, yeah, he's fit to stand trial. Mm. He stood that trial uh, last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just a one-week trial, which is very short. Normally trials go for about four or five weeks. Sometimes it's so short? Well, it was so short because it was such an unusual case. And the defence said that, so his lawyers said it's a very unusual case. What happened was James Gargasoulis agreed to all the facts of the case. So he agreed that he was the one behind the wheel of the maroon car. He uh, stabbed his brother, that he killed those six people Mm. and that he injured the 27 others, 33 victims in total. Um, But he pleaded not guilty, Mm -hmm. which is his right. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds... A little odd, but it's his right to do so. You can agree to all the facts. You can agree to everything, but still say, I'm pleading not guilty. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And even one day when I put my script into a um, executive producer, she read it and she said, this just doesn't make sense. And I was like, I know, I promise you, it's all factually correct. Mm. She's like, but he's he's saying you did it all, but he's pleading not guilty. And I was like, yeah, I know. And Mm. that is his right. But... Trials normally go five to six weeks. This one, just one week because they didn't have to, because he admitted to it all really, but was pleading not guilty. Um, And they didn't have to prove it all because so much of it was caught on camera. Right. I think it was one of the first real massive crimes we've had where it's everyone whipped their phones out. And I remember at the time that it happened, police, their website, I think, crashed because they were so inundated with people sending mobile phone vision. And then on top of that, they've got all the city safe cameras around Melbourne, which were these cameras that are put in that can be controlled by people in a room somewhere and they can track what people are doing. And they had all that vision. Mm. I've sat in a lot of trials this was the most horrific trial I've ever sat in. For what reason? Because I watched people being murdered Mm. for two hours and I've sat in trials and I've said it on this podcast so many times about how I've seen bodies and it doesn't faze me sometimes and, you know, it can be upsetting and the thing that upsets me the most is seeing the families and for two hours uh, there was a seven-minute compile which showed – it was like a highlights reel pretty much Mm. of the worst that he did. Mm. And then they went through one by one each victim from Mm. one to 33 and they played vision of what they were doing before. So you'd see them happily walking through Burke Street with their families or walking back from lunch with their work colleagues. And then it went to this reconstruction that showed where they pinpointed the spot where they were hit. Then they played actual CCTV of them being hit, of Mm. the car hitting them, sometimes from different angles. And then they played vision from other angles of people running to help them afterwards. And that took roughly about an hour and 45 minutes. So all up with the amount of times they played that compile, it was about two hours of watching people die. What was he doing while that was being played? Uh 
it sounds so cliche to say there was no emotion, but there was nothing. Was he watching it? He was watching it out of the very corner of his eye. So the only way I can explain it is if you're looking head on and the TV was to your left or your right, his Mm. head never moved, but his eyes moved to the side Mm -hmm. to watch it. And you're sitting in a courtroom with the families of those six people who died. One of them was a baby that died. Zachary Bryant was the youngest victim. Oh, that was something that stuck out to me in the coverage of the trial. The baby was thrown 70 metres. Thrown a really long way. So he, the the facts of the case were that he aimed the car for that pram and he hit that pram, which was being pushed by a nanny. The the mum had just said goodbye. And you see in the vision that baby being flung out of the pram. You then see the pram gets lodged in the windscreen of that car and he drives with that pram and that second child on lodged in his windscreen. Like he goes over intersections, like he's driving, and mm. you see the baby on the pavement. And the heartbreaking part about that was that no one went to him because no one realised because he was so small. So with all the other victims, there is, I think, part of what I saw in that vision gave me a lot of hope in a way because so many people ran towards the danger. Mm. I can't just, and it must be a human reaction which really stuck out to me, was that the people that saw people being hit ran towards those people to help. Mm. But then in like the 20, 30 seconds after when other people had that, and there's, you know, I'm not shaming people for doing this but it was just interesting to watch the human reaction in the 20 to 30 seconds after for people who went what what i didn't see what happened but i'm out on the street what happened what do i do they all ran away Hmm. you know and that's so understandable because it it was a gut reaction that made people run towards other humans and try and help but then when the reality of it sinks in and cops start screaming and telling people to get back everyone just ran away Hmm. um so you, you've seen, as you know, we've talked about so many times mm. on this podcast, you've seen a lot of death, you've seen a lot of dead bodies. Yeah. But that jury who are just I feel our peers, people on the street, how did they cope with seeing all of that? I have no doubt in my mind that some of those jurors are absolutely broken from what they saw. Mm. There was... One man and one woman in particular who I can't I can't really describe because juries are anonymous, mm. um, that I strongly feel walked away traumatised by that one-week trial. Mm. There was one man who could not look anymore and I couldn't look and I'm desensitised to so much of this. Mm. He just couldn't look at the screen anymore and I couldn't look at the screen. Mm. You know, once we got to victim 22... You're just like thinking, I can't watch another human being being hunted by a car. Mm. I just cannot do it. Um, It was some of the most horrific vision I've ever seen. And I think it just goes to show, you know, we're in a different day and age. And we saw that again with Burke Street on Friday. Mm. Um, Well, be a couple of Fridays ago by the time this airs. Again, people whipping out their phones and, you know, Mm. we had all that vision filtering in so quickly um, of a man being shot, a man attacking police, a man lying on the ground in the middle of Burke Street dying. Yeah. And it's horrific. Yeah. It's awful. And I think it's going to keep happening more and more in this day and age is that so many people are going to start seeing this horrific vision. 
Incredible, absolutely mm. incredible. And I, I do remember, and I think you were on air with me on the night of the, that attack. Do you remember? Were we? Or was it the Monday after? Can't remember. Was close to it. Yeah, no, it was close. Yeah. It was close. Um, and one of the things that police were saying was they didn't. We weren't criticising people for shooting the stuff no. on their phone because it's something that's kind of frowned off. Like, oh, don't take pictures. It's actually of that. really helpful though, as well. Exactly. And I know people yeah. think, why would you film it? Why would you be filming right now? But so much of that vision, especially from the Gargasulas incident. Mm is now evidence in court yep. and is so crucial. And you just don't know if you've captured something that helps police put the story together 100%. and gather evidence. And I know it does look really insensitive and, you know, we feel insensitive when we turn up with TV cameras filming things, but mm. that evidence in that second can be so, so crucial. Yeah. I'll just wrap up by saying uh, for people that were – people were quite upset that we were constantly calling him the accused and alleged because yeah. – there was vision of him doing it, Mm. we no longer have to say that. So I know we've always known it, and I wrote it in my script at the time, we've always known that he was a person behind the wheel. Mm. We no longer have to say it. It goes to a three-day plea hearing now, which is where all the victims get their say to tell him how what he did has changed their lives forever. And then he'll be sentenced, but that won't happen until next year. Wow. Mm. Heavy stuff to go through. Really heavy. Yeah. I mentioned Ned Kelly in yes. the last episode, yes. So not the, a hero. Not, no. Killed mm. three policemen. Bad, bad, bad. But um, I think I might have mentioned the death masks and the burial of prisoners and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So there's it's another up a little bit throughout. A little bit. And death pod. masks. I, I can't stop staring at them. I've been looking them up. They're, you have a weird fascination with them. I haven't really looked at them that much. Oh, you have to explain it what it is okay so well in the victorian era people were quite used i said that a bit strangely they are all i'm so not doing accents anymore uh people were were, they're really used to death because it was just people died at home yeah people were laid out in their homes Mm. often it was the blase laissez-faire that's right that's a bit french so just watch it with that's a proper term though it means calm. I can't. You can't either. Mm. People, there were all sorts of rules like mourning clothes. You know, especially yeah. for women, they would wear black all the time. Uh, they took photos of the dead. I think if you look back on our Facebook page, you'll see the link to the Memento Mori pictures where they used to take photos of. Yes. Um, and death masks were commonly made of criminals. Don't be mad. I'm googling at the same time. It wasn't weird to look up. Yeah. Okay. Do that. Yeah. Um, there was a guy in Melbourne called Maximilian Kreitmeier, That's and a good he, name, isn't it? It is good. Yeah, yeah, Maxie. And he was the waxworks proprietor who actually made Nick Kelly's death mask in 1880. What they would do is once the body was dead, they would shave the head, they would grease up the whole head and then make their impression with plaster and stuff and then make the wax copy of it. And whenever he would put a new one up in his wax display in his museum in Melbourne, people would turn up in droves to have a look at it. Yes, James Dean. James Dean's death mark. Oh, there it is. Well, this is interesting because in London, in the National Portrait Gallery there, they've got like 30 or 40 um, death masks in their collection, but they're all great people like Williams, William Wordsworth and um, Benjamin Disraeli and great artists and composers and stuff. Whereas here in Australia, our death masks are all executed criminals because we had so many convicts here in Australia and they wanted to study them. So people thought oh, well, that... that was my question. Why? Yeah, Why well, do this? It was two things. It was one, there was a huge interest in what was called phrenology, which was the study of the shape of the skull. They thought that the lumps and bumps on the shape of the head right. could determine or tell you what the character was going to be like. But also they thought that perhaps those criminal tendencies were 
catchy, you know, or you well, could inherit features. them more. So they wanted to study it more. Yeah. And there is something, actually, I had a friend who was um, studying medicine and he said that sometimes men have a, a flat back of the head. An onion head. He said an onion head? Yeah, it's what my sister like and I call them. Like it doesn't have a nice curve in at the yeah, neck. Yeah, onion head. If you turn an onion so that the base is on the side, yes. then the top bit looks like your nose and the back bit is flat. Does that yes. make sense? Well, he said those my men are most, most, that they're quite head. often aggressive. It's got something to do with the way they were born. Something happens to their head when they were born. That's not true. Um, Ned Kelly's death mask, by the way. I'm just undoing science and all this scientific <laughs> research by just saying that's not true. Ned's um, mask is on display at the Old Melbourne Jail. Here we have some of them. I just love their names. There's a Daniel Mad Dog Morgan, Joe Byrne, that's ordinary, Bold Jack Donahue. He's actually mentioned in the Wild Colonial Boy song. There's a guy called John Natchbull. as a death mask of him. He was a naval captain. He bludgeoned a shopkeeper, a young girl, to death with a tomahawk in 1844. If um, anyone's squeamish, you shouldn't be because I'm Googling them right now. They're not revolting or no, anything. No, they're just fascinating. They're just, like they're just – And mostly you can see if they've been taken laying down, but sometimes they sort of prop them up. And we will put Mm. pictures on our Facebook page, but they'd sort of sit them at a desk and put the plaster on their head. You know what's quite amazing is some of the ones that I've just looked up are from, say, the 1700s. So if we didn't have a death mask, all you'd have would be an artist's portrait of that person. But then because you have the death mask, you, you kind of see exactly what they would look like. Yeah. It's quite amazing. And and it was great for the Victorian people because they could go and get right up close and look at these people and see what they were like. Mm. Um, okay, so one in particular I want to focus on, and it was George Frenchy Melville. He was a 31-year-old ex-convict from Tasmania, and he had a gang. William oh. Atkins, who was 28, George Wilson, 32, mm. John and Joseph Francis. There was Joe Gray, whose, whose alias was Nutty. No reason to mention him other than cool nickname. And I wish I had a name like that. I think I've said this before. Chanel Nutty Vella. Not Nutty, like something that sounds <laughs> that badass. Sounds, that sounds like a jar of chocolate spread. Like he gets a mad dog and he has a gang and mm. one of his gang members is called Nutty. You know? <laughs> and are. in this day and age you could save all your gang members under their names on, on your phone yeah. and then if you were having coffee with someone it would just come up, mad dog. <laughs> and you'd go, just excuse me for a minute, you know? I went out. With a guy Head cruncher. years ago who um, his nickname was Meat Axe mm. and he was a policeman. Home killer. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of names that you could have. All right. So this gang, they planned to carry out a robbery on a gold escort, which was coming from the MacIver diggings in the Victorian goldfields. So this is during the gold rush, um, 1853. The Melbourne Gold Escort Company uh, had a dray that was driven by a man called Thomas Flukes. And so it pulled out of MacIver on its way with gold and cash on board. He was heading for Kyneton, and when he got there, he was supposed to join up with uh, another escort that would have actually from the government that would have taken him on to Melbourne. This guy, Flukes, who was driving the dray, he was accompanied by five men on horseback and a police sergeant. And they had got about 20 miles out of MacIver on their way when they came across a big log thrown across the road. Oh, no. Red flag. Yes. Oh, no. But they had listened to this podcast, so they didn't know about your red flag. They didn't know it was a red flag. I knew instantly it was. So So they got out of the car. Well, no. The driver tried to drive around no. the big log. They don't have cars in that oh, time. It's a dray and a horse a dray. and stuff. Dray. Tried to drive confused. around it, 
And as he was going around, he was shot and killed in a hail of bullets oh, from this gang. Peppered. And the escort sort of fought back for a little bit, but then they just gave up and they all ran off and left the money and the gold there. Mm. It was, was one of the big trap. What? It was a trap. Mm. The, the old log across the road trap. And it was one of the biggest in Australia at the time. They got away with, I think it was around, I've seen varying amounts on different stories, but around £10,000 in golden cash. Wow, which that's would be about, a load of money. It is. That's a lot. I think around $300,000 in today's money. Mm. Big manhunt. Uh, most of them tried to get out of the country on board different ships, but mm. they were caught. Slow way to escape. Very. Right? <laughs> I'm running away. My ship will be here in Stop. five weeks. Stop. Stop. So George Melville, William Atkins and George Wilson were all caught. They were charged with the murder of the driver, Thomas Flukes. They went on trial in Melbourne and the three of them were sentenced to death. Oh. Uh, by the way, some of the money was recovered, but the bulk of the gold was never found oh, because some it? of the gang got away. Well, we don't know. The, some of the gang disappeared. Could be in other countries. The Argus newspaper at the time reported, the announcement of the verdict had considerable effect on Melville, who became suddenly pale. Oh, was that an accent? No, that's, a, that's okay, though. Because it's not a living person. Yeah. Uh, and frequently drew his hand over his forehead, as if in the deepest state of mental agony. Uh, and then, so all three were sentenced to hang. And I just want to read you this bit, because the newspaper... I mean, it's, imagine if we published this sort of stuff in papers today. Oh, it's incredible. What they used to, I think I'm being scant, like a little risque sometimes with some of the things I say in reporting. But back then... They went for it. Mm. So here's the hanging. Melville was the first to leave the cell. He was dressed in a black surtout coat. I had to look that up. A surtout coat is a man's frock coat, like okay. they wore in cavalry and stuff. Um White waistcoat and trousers. He appeared very pale and nervous and his countenance, that's your face, you knew that, showed that his mind was fearfully at work. He was immediately pinioned. What do you think that is? I don't know. Pin arms tied or something? Oh, yeah, maybe. And the white cap put upon his head. Oh, yeah, they yeah, did that, didn't they? So you couldn't look at their face mm -hmm. while they were dying. Although I think it was just a white cap. I don't think the bag was over his face yet. Immediately after, Wilson was called out. He was dressed in a white-lined coat and trousers and a black waistcoat. Pinion means restrained. Okay. Upon leaving the cell, he begged to be allowed to speak. And on the sheriff bowing in reply, Wilson made what appeared to our reporter to be an earnest appeal. But not being allowed to be within hearing, our reporter is unable to record the prisoner's dying marks. Remarks. Oh. So he said something, but they they didn't know what he said. Um, some of this I've preceded a little bit. Melville turned around and looked at Wilson during this address. Wilson, having been heard, was pinioned, and the preparations with respect to him being completed. Atkins was next led forth, dressed in a rough brown coat, grey waistcoat and trousers. This prisoner said nothing and all, having now been pinioned, then walked forward to the scaffold in the order in which they left the prison cell. What a terrifying feeling. Imagine. I know they've done the wrong thing, yeah. but how awful. The clergyman walked alongside, repeating the solemn burial service of the Church of England. The men walked with a tolerably firm step, especially Wilson, whose rather impudent air remained with him to the last. Atkins was the most subdued. Melville appeared to be engaged in prayers. The melancholy procession emerged from the jail into the prison yard. They now reached the scaffold, which they ascended in the same order of rotation, arrived at the top of the scaffold. Wilson addressed the people. 
I'll just shorten this bit here. He told the witnesses that he forgave them for giving evidence in the trial, which was kind of nice. And then, just before they did what they were going to do, they um, he confessed to another crime. Oh, he said that deathbed confession. Yeah, well, gallows confession. Yeah. So he told them that another guy who was. Um, in jail over robbery that had happened in St Kilda that he had been there for was innocent. So he took the rap for it. Oh. Hmm. Uh, Melville began to speak, but he realised that people were too far off to hear him, so he just stopped and he wished them all a very good morning. All Hmm. the people, the huge crowd had drawn to watch this. Um, Atkins made no remark. Uh, I'll just read a little bit more from this. I'm not going to watch a hanging. No. Or they loved it, these people. No, I just wouldn't, though. For my own brain. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I could ever watch an execution. No. The dreadful scheme of public death now being arranged in all its details, the executioner, having placed the ropes around their necks, fixed the men in their relative positions and having drawn the caps over their eyes, Walsh, the hangman, imagine naming him. Everyone's going to know, who are you? Walsh the Hangman. Walsh the Hangman. It's a cool name, though. Descended the stairs to draw the fatal bolt. This was done and the men fell. All all at the same time? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. So the the floor goes out from under them. I was going to ask you if they went separately, would you want to be the first one or the last one, but they all went at the same time. Yeah. Uh, They convulsed with the throes of the death struggle. Atkins died almost immediately. Wilson and Melville struggled for some time, but the executioner, having drawn down on the legs of Melville with considerable force, he presently ceased to move. Can you believe this is in the newspaper? They had to pull down on his legs because he wouldn't die. Yep. Both Melville and Wilson appeared to die hard. There was no post-mortem examination. How's that when they're just like, oh, he's not dying. Off you go, hangman. Just awful. Actually, there was another paragraph that caught my eye that's not necessarily related, but it said, The wretched wife of Atkins is left quite destitute, and to add to her troubles is near her confinement, which means he's about to give a, have a baby. Mm. She appears to be in a most pitiable state of mind. And then, can you believe it, after that, the next paragraph is, The weather on the morning of the execution was oh. unexpectedly fine. Oh, they even acknowledged. <laughs> they could have just did, didn't just do a weather bit saying, Today will be 21. Yeah. The weather on the day of the execution, they've wrapped that up together. Mm-hmm. With the peculiar boldness and atrocity of the crime, may account for the huge concourse of spectators. There was a considerable number of persons within the walls of the prison, including the officials, turnkeys. First time I read it, I thought it said turkeys. No, oh, why have they got turkeys, turkeys there? No, no. And police present. Now, okay, back to Melville. He was married to a French woman. I can't actually find her name anywhere. It's weird how they just didn't treat women like they were actual humans. No need for a name. With a name. Just a woman. She was married. He was married to a French woman and she adored him and he adored her. And when they came to arrest him, she had whispered, it is as I feared. And she clung to his neck and she kissed him and she said, oh, George, did I not warn you? Hush, he muttered. All will yet be well. And it didn't Mm. turn out so well. well. She owned a bit of property when she married him and they ran a, get this, Fruit and oyster shop in Little Burke Street. I don't want my fruit next to oysters. I don't know how <laughs> you are about it. It's awkward, isn't it? Yeah. It was in Little Burke Street. Uh, she visited him in jail for as long as she could during the trial. On the day he was hanged, she applied what to have his body released to her. She said she wanted to give him a proper burial. 
and her wish was granted. They said, sure, you take him. So in late 1853, she took his body, she decorated it with flowers and ribbons, and she displayed it in the window of her oyster shop in Little Burke Street. You know what else that I want with my fruit and oysters? What's that? Melville. Was that his name? <laughs> I said it right? You did. Oh. Crowds of people, obviously, that's going – and she was actually charging people money to come and see it. Oh, no. Well, I felt so woman. bad for her a moment ago. Yeah, no, she's, she's lost smart. the love of her life. She's doing well for herself. She's got a shop. She's okay. Crowds of people turned up. The, oh. the newspaper of the day reported uh, the body of Melville was given over to his wife and that French lady – again, no that name – That French lady. <laughs> – made an exhibition of the corpse in her shop to all who would pay to see it. A great number were attracted by this unusual – and repulsive show. Madame, in her broken English, would say to her visitors, now, th- can I just be clear, this is not me doing this, this is exactly the, wor- the, the, the way it is written Go. in the newspaper. It was very good. They've actually spelt it that way, V-E-R-G-W. Oh. It was a fair fight, six to six, and I am not sorry. So she's sticking by him. Right. She's saying that... I. You can't just write in the newspaper how people sound. I have this real thing about um, subtitling people on the news. Yes, because it's immediately saying you don't make sense. It's so awful. (laughs) I hate doing it. And if ever someone does an interview and I think, oh, no, we have to subtitle you and you're going to watch the news tonight, you're going to tell all your friends to watch the news, I'm on the news, and then you're going to see yourself subtitled. And I really only do it if it's very necessary that the story's um, point is not going to get across unless we subtitle you, but I always feel awful about it. I could come in and dub over. No, no. Stop ring. It was such a spectacle that the police got wind of it pretty quickly and they had the body returned to the Melbourne jail where it was buried along with the other executed criminals and that, that was big, the bones I was talking about in the, in the last thing. episode. Yep. Um, and after the Melville incident, as it became known, all convicted criminals' bodies were buried in unmarked graves within the prison grounds. She could be charged with um, profiting from crime. What's that charge? Oh, yeah. Is that is that? But not body stealing. Not body stealing. Hmm. What do you see now on Little Burke Street? I don't know what's there now. Not bodies. No. I met this fantastic guy called James, who is a funeral director, and I thought that's, hmm, I know someone who'd like to talk to him, Sharnel Vella. Me. Meet James. Hi, James. Oh, good evening, ladies. Good to be with you. Thank you. You have a wonderful job. And you sound like a butcher. Because butchers are always chirpy. You don't think of funeral directors <laughs> as where being chirpy. Yeah, I don't know. I've never had that analogy um, put to me before <laughs> quite like that. But uh, I think um, I think generally speaking, funeral directors are quite chirpy. Certainly um, my generation of funeral directors are. I mean, we're celebrating people's lives each and every day. And I like to think about that this, this day could be my last one. So... I try to be as upbeat as I possibly can each and every day. The whole thing has sort of swung around, hasn't it? Like it, it, it used to be that um, the funerals were sad and for grieving and for having a good cry, whereas now it, I feel like it's it's more about talking about the life of the person and, and like you said, celebrating their life. Yeah, I think I think we've made some very positive steps forward in uh, in funerals, and uh, and you know it, it, was, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago, certainly, that uh, the 50s, that women wouldn't go to funerals, to certainly to the cemetery. 
Um, as a kid growing up, um, I can remember because my father was a funeral director and my mother was a funeral director, you know, not too many kids were going to funerals at that stage. And so we've really, uh, and we're wearing black, etc. we've really made the move forward. And we are indeed celebrating life. And I think that, you know, I think there's some really positive steps forwards. And I think there's been some positive steps forwards to really help people with loss and grief. You know, um, because we are celebrating life and focusing on the positives um, rather than just the negatives of uh, mourning someone's loss. James, tell me about some of the funerals that have stood out for you. Oh, look, it's, um, there's, you know, I've been involved in funerals for, for over 30 years and uh, I guess there's a, a variety of things that stand out for me. Um, there's the days then you come home from work and you're not as upbeat as you'd like to be because not every day we we, we do the funerals for, you know, people in their 90s and uh, mm. um, we do funerals for people that, um, sadly, um, you know, people have lost children. I think that they're the most difficult days that I put in. Um, I just always have always looked away from children's funerals just feeling rather empty about it all. Mm. Um, we really shouldn't be there. None of us should be there. No parent should be put in that position. And it, no matter how well we do it all and tick, you know, um, and, and, you know, everything that they would like and they'd like for the celebration, you just walk away feeling very empty. So children's funerals are tough. Um, funerals for people that have uh, young people, they're tough. Um, I used to find suicide funerals incredibly difficult to mm. deal with. Um, I worked in Canberra for a period of time, and one long weekend I arranged seven funerals, and six of them were suicide. Wow, mm. goodness. And, um, and I became very angry by the Monday night. It was Labor Day weekend. By the Monday night, I was terribly angry. Um, and um, it wasn't until uh, after many years in the funeral industry I got to understand suicide a lot more and you know, I was thinking about the pain that the people have left behind, but I never realised how much pain they were actually in yeah. uh, to to take that, you know, their, the, the older and take their life. So they're all the real difficulties um, that, um, and, and they've been, um, uh, and they, they, they don't change. It doesn't, hasn't changed today. They're no easier today than they ever were, and they don't, won't be easier tomorrow either. Mm. Young people's funerals, children's funerals, they're tough. James, what are the rules with funerals? Like you mentioned a moment ago, wearing black. Do people not wear black anymore? Look, I think that um, I think that we're really seeing some creative funeral thinking, um, and uh, and we're seeing people really wanting to to celebrate the person who's died. So we're we're seeing all sorts of things, and uh, you'll see it if you read the newspaper. You know, wear a touch of pink. You know. Um, you know, we you know, one, you know we have one wear pocket squares and party frocks um, to a funeral, etc. And I think that uh, I think that we're seeing that our role as funeral directors essentially, because most people in their lifetime only will be involved personally um, to arrange perhaps two, possibly three funerals in their lifetime. Our job, our role, is to give people permission to do things that perhaps they didn't think was possible mm. and to really celebrate um, the person's life and to make it um, as warm and uh, as possible because the funerals are very much for the living, the people left behind who have to carry on with life. 
so that if we can make them, you know, far more um, positive and work on the celebratory, um, you know, aspects, um, because uh, they are very much about life and not death so much these days. James, you touched on it just slightly there. What are some of the things that people have come to you and said, we want to do this, and you've said, never done that before, but we'll make it happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question, and um, I'm a big believer in uh, really encouraging all of our people um, that if it's legal, it's possible. If it's Gee. legal, it's possible. Good motto. Sounds like party town. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and just this, you know, go back to the old Bob Ansett um, era of can do, can do. And uh, that's so very important. So we've done a funeral for a pilot. We hired a uh, uh, an aeroplane and he had invited all the, the, the guests that he wanted to be at his memorial. We flew that um, over the Arrow Valley and over Portville Bay we had various different speeches. We had the touchdown screen. The screens came down. We had audio visual with a champagne toast, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so there's there's something that was done there. Um, I was up on the Murray River on Friday, and we conducted a funeral on a boat, where the coffin was placed on the boat. The boat landed on a beach where everyone was gathered on the Murray River. Wow! And um, they carried out the service there, and then the boat. Um, drove off in the water and they all farewelled and then uh, went up to the parklands to have afternoon tea and the boat went down the river, met our hearse and then went off for cremation. I thought you were going to say the the body was put in the river. Are there rules (laughs) about where you're allowed to actually put a a dead body? Like does it have to be in a cemetery? cemetery? Yeah. No, there's different rules in different states. So, um, for example, um, in Victoria... Uh, we don't have uh, we, we, we we don't have any private cemeteries, so to speak. They're all um, government-formed cemeteries. In New South Wales, and for example, Kerry Packer, he was buried on his farm in New South Wales. There is a lot of you can apply to the uh, health department and get approval to be buried on your own land in New South Wales, for example. Some people, and we get a number of inquiries for burials at sea each year. And there are rules and regulations associated with that and the distance that you have to go out to sea um, and what you have to place in the casket to ensure that it does um, meet the bottom of the ocean, etc. What do you have to put in there? Well, we we put in um, usually weights, um, usually weights, and that can be... Um, that can either be, um, um, generally speaking, it is a, of, a, of a concrete form okay. um, that's placed in the base. Wait, of the I didn't cup. know this was happening. What's that? I didn't know this Chanel's was happening. <laughs> How many people have you buried at sea, do you think, in a uh, casket, well, not throwing no, ashes, well, bodies? Yeah, no, I'm talking bodies. Uh, uh, our company has done, you know, certainly to my knowledge, uh, a handful of such burials. And uh, wow. once again, as people make the inquiry and... Uh, and uh, we, we've got to make it happen. So, um, and there's a lot involved in it, and you've got to go a long distance out. Yeah. Um, but um, but it can happen. As I said, it's legal and it's possible. I, I suppose if it's what the family wish, and if what the deceased, if that was their yep. wishes, and you're making it happen, um, James, we have to ask you: When did? How old were you when you first saw a dead body? I was in kindergarten. What? Um, so you need to understand that I was um, born and bred um, in the funeral industry. I came home from hospital. We lived at uh, the rear of a funeral home, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was that was normal to me. Um, it was a normal part of life. Um, I didn't see, um, and I can remember helping my dad at different times um, as a young person. But I remember kindergarten. This was a 
a, a distant relative, and I can remember, um, you know, um, seeing her and uh, at the viewing, and uh, you know, I was blessed. My mum and dad didn't hide death from us. It was a normal part of life for me as a kid, being um, growing up, and you know, and uh, it wasn't so normal for lots of my friends that I went to school with and things like that. I mean. Um, you know, when I'd ask them to come over and play, not too many parents were keen on them coming to play at the rear of the funeral home. I bet your friends um, wanted to come over, though. That would be cool. Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's interesting, you know, but and I, I wondered until I was, uh, you know, an adult, uh, a teenager, why that was so. Because I, I played with a guy who had the local milk bar. We'd go there. Another a friend of mine had the news agency. You know, that was all normal. Why wouldn't they want to come back to... To, to our place, and I think it was more the parents' issue than it certainly was the kids, because they were fascinated with the whole thing and leaning around death and you know bodies and dying, etc. Well, James, we are so grateful for your time. Thank you. You play a very important role in closure for families, and it sounds like you're doing some wonderful things in achieving that. Yeah, good on you guys. Love to be with you. Thanks, James. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.